you'd like to open up your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 23, we'll be there in just a moment, Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. Uh, we'll reference some other scriptures on the screen before we get there, but if you'll turn to Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, you'll be ready for our lesson this evening. Um, just very quickly in regard to announcements, um, the third through fifth devotional will be next Sunday at our house, at the McClenney's house, and then at the uh, Pat and Cassie Penn's house will be junior high. Junior high devotional will be next Sunday at Pat and Cassie Penn's house. Um, David, uh, those songs work great. Uh, they were excellent. Um, and the lesson tonight is on humility, but... Um, from a perspective that I've not considered before. Maybe you have, but uh, I've not considered this before, and so maybe it'll be helpful to you. I want us to look at the Apostle Paul, and Paul is a fascinating character in so many different ways. You know, we know so much about him. We know a lot about his life before becoming a Christian. We know a ton about his conversion, and we know a whole lot about his life after his conversion in his missionary journeys, in the letters that he wrote. We just know a lot about Paul. And he's a really an interesting character in so many ways, but one of the ways that I find him particularly interesting is he is so honest and he's so sincere in the things that he says. And, and maybe you say, well, every Christian should be honest and sincere in the things that they say. But it's like Paul never sugarcoats anything. He just says the way it is. And he does that even about himself and the way he views himself. And one of the phrases that he uses that I think is really insightful once we stop and think about it is this phrase right here, that I am less than the least, less than the least of all the saints. And there are a couple of other occasions, we'll talk about them here in just a second, where he says something similar about himself. And I'll be honest, there have been times in my life where I've read some of these statements that Paul makes, and I'm like, come on, Paul. Like, like what are you talking about? You're less than the least of all the saints? You are Paul the Apostle. And I know we're supposed to be humble and stuff, but let's be honest, like you're, you're better than a lot of the saints. Like, you're the greatest traveling evangelist of all time. So what's this nonsense about being less than the least of all the saints? But Paul is nothing if not sincere. And he wouldn't say this unless he really believed it. So what is it that Paul is saying when he says this? Again, this is one of really three instances where he says something along these lines. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, I am the least of the apostles. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, I am less than the least of all the saints. And then he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, I am the foremost, or maybe your translation says worst, that's the idea. I am the worst of all sinners. And you read those statements. And I know Paul meant it when he said it, so what is it that he's saying? This is not false humility. And I don't believe that it's symbolic hyperbole either. What is it that Paul is trying to communicate? And what does this reveal about what my attitude toward myself ought to be in regard to humility? Well, let's see if we can set the context. Doesn't that always help us when we, we come across we come across phrases or passages that on the surface don't make a ton of sense. 
A lot of times it is those very passages that are difficult on the surface that give us the most insight uh, into who we ought to be and what God desires of us. But we really have to set the context of these statements if we're going to understand them correctly. So let's do that tonight. And Really, that's what the lesson is going to be about. First, the historical context. Have you considered when these statements were written? We know just about, um, these are approximate dates, but we know that in 1 Corinthians 15, it was written around 55 A.D. Now, don't hold me to these. Again, these are approximate. Ephesians and the letter to the Ephesian brethren would have been written around 60 A.D. or somewhere thereabouts. And then 1 Timothy, more toward the end of Paul's life, in about A.D. 62. Now, again, if you don't like those dates, that's fine. You can be wrong. No. What we do know uh, with very great certainty, even if it's not these exact years, it was written in this order. 1 Corinthians is written first, then Ephesians, and then 1 Timothy. Now you look up on the board and look at these statements. Is there a progression or degression to these statements when you consider them? Isn't it interesting that he says, I am the least of the apostles? Well, I mean, at least you're still an apostle, right? I mean, there's only a few of those, and they saw Christ, and they have the Holy Spirit, and they can pass on the miraculous gifts. I mean, I mean, if you're going to be the least of something, you're the least of the apostles, that's, that's pretty good, right? That's like saying, I am the least of the presidents. Well, you were still president. That's still pretty good, right? But then he says, I am less than the least of all the saints. Well, in our mind, in our way of thinking, we would put saints below apostles. I mean, apostles are still saints, we know that, but, but they aren't apostles. They aren't these special called out ones who were sent out on this special journey. They're, they're saints, they're Christians. And he says, I am less than the least of all the saints. But then he gets even lower, doesn't he? He says, I am the worst. I am the least, if you want to put it in those terms. I'm the least of all sinners. We're not even talking about saints or apostles anymore. And so what we see here is this progression. As the years go on, it is as if Paul is thinking less about himself rather than more. And, and really, that's the way it ought to be, right? That Christian maturity is growing not less aware of your unworthiness before God, but more. That I realize more clearly how little I am. How little I am in comparison to my God and what He has done for me. And yet, incredibly, at the same time, Christian maturity is also growing more confident in your salvation and purpose. And so these things seemingly almost cross one another, right? I am... I am more and more aware of how low I am in comparison to God, and then at the same time, I am growing more and more confident in my purpose and in my salvation. So we think about that context, the historical context. What does the context of everything else Paul says about himself tell us? Well, it tells us that Paul wasn't this guy who was just always talking bad about himself. He was not a guy who, who acted like, well, I'm just the worst, I can't do anything right. Just the opposite, we see that Paul makes some statements of great confidence about himself. And Paul's statements that he makes here should not be confused with a lack of confidence in God, 
in his salvation, or even in his ability to fulfill the work that God had placed before him. Paul did not see himself as worthless and useless in God's service. Anything but. Paul was not someone who was uncertain or unsure. In fact, he was open and honest and acknowledged some pretty good things about himself. He acknowledged his zeal in following his conscience. If you're there in Acts chapter 23, let's read verse 1 together. Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin court. And he says to those gathered in this court, looking earnestly at the council. So this is somebody who is standing before them, eyes wide open, looking straight into their eyes, and he says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You know who that reminds me of? That reminds me of Bill Reeves. Bill Reeves was one of those men who would say, Look, I haven't always done what was right. I acknowledge that, but I've always done what I thought was right, what I believed was right. I think Paul felt the same way. He said, I've done all things in good conscience. I have not always done what was right. I've sinned and I've sinned in horrible ways. But I always did what I thought was right. He says something very similar in the next chapter, Acts chapter 24 and verse 16. Before Felix, he says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. If I've done something wrong, I make it right. And I don't want my con- anything to be on my conscience, whether it's toward God or it's toward, toward men. I am not somebody who messes around. I make sure everything is right. Does that sound like someone who doesn't have confidence in what it is he's doing and his relationship with God? Not just his zeal in following his conscience, He also describes his desire to do what's right. One example of this is in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. And he's expressing his frustration with himself, but there's an interesting phrase here. He says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but but what I hate, that I do. Now again, he's expressing, I'm not always doing what's right. And it's frustrating to me. But it's interesting what he says here. For what I will to do. My desire, he says, is always to do what's right. That's my desire. That's what I seek out. And that's what I've always done. Even more, he had confidence in his position as an apostle. He had confidence in his life of devotion and doing God's will and work all over the world. Let me give you a few examples of this. First, I don't know what my rate of speech is tonight, but I am hyped up. I don't know why. All right, let's calm down. Let's all calm down. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So cool. Is this cool? Like, I've never seen this before. This is blowing my mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That didn't do a lot to calm us down, did it? Now, this is in comparing himself um, kind of reluctantly. He says, this is foolish talk, but I'm going to fight fire with fire. I'm going to answer a fool according to his folly is the, is the idea. 
these people who claim to be apostles and are not, he says, well, let's compare those so-called super apostles. Let's compare them to a real apostle. I'm an apostle. So let's see how this comparison goes. Uh, let's look first, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now he's just said, I am the least of the apostles. And yet he turns around here in 2 Corinthians and says, I'm not inferior to any of them. You pick the best of the apostles. Peter, I withstood him to his face because he should have been grieved at what he had done. He was wrong in what he did. I'm not lower in this sense, than any of the most eminent of the apostles. And he goes on to describe his work beginning in verse 22. And again, this is comparing himself with those who are claiming apostleship but were not. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We say, hey, I, I remember one of those times he was shipwrecked in Acts chapter 27. Remember when he was shipwrecked there? That hasn't happened yet. He's already been shipwrecked three times, and we know he's going to be shipwrecked at least one more time for the cause of Christ in his travels. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other thing, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Well, that, that confirms what he said back there in verse 5. I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. And even when he compared himself with the genuine apostles, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 10? We'll, we'll read this later on. But I labored more abundantly than them all. They all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He said, you just want to compare um, clocking in and clocking out. You want to compare how much work we've done. He says, I've worked more than any of the other apostles. I don't know if I'd feel comfortable saying that, right? I have labored more abundantly than any preacher out there. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. And yet Paul felt confident to say this. Paul wasn't feeling worthless and down in the dumps when he said these three statements. Just the opposite, he had confidence. He knew who, who he was and he knew his worth clearly because Christ redeemed him and put him to service. And these statements were all made in a local textual context as well. So we've set the historical context, the context in the rest of the Bible, when we really look at these statements in their local context, Paul is referring to the sins he had committed before coming to Christ as the reason for his abasement. To consider himself less than the least 
It was the sins that he committed before becoming a Christian that made him feel this way. So let's turn now to those passages. First, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8. First Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection of the dead, and he says Jesus was raised, and that's the good news that we're preaching to you. And Jesus was not just raised, he was witnessed, he was seen by all of these different people, including the apostles, and then finally me, myself. Verse 8, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. He says, I'm like that. That oopsie-daisy. I'm like that kid that was born 10 years after everybody else. I was born out of due time. But I'm still an apostle. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Because, here's the reason he felt that way. I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I have labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Okay? Turn now, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. And let's read verses 1 through 11 of Ephesians chapter 3. His sin and his work for the things that he emphasizes. And this focuses more on his work in verse 1, beginning. Talking about everyone being reconciled, Jew and Gentile. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation He has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, and was who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, begin reading in verse 12. This again focuses more on his sin rather than his work, although his work is there as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Uh, that's arrogance, but it's, it's arrogance that is manifested in a, in a sort of violent, stubborn sort of way. I was an insolent man, 
But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, of whom I am foremost. I am the worst of these sinners. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul calls himself these things. And especially as we consider that last phrase, the, the foremost, the worst of sinners. It is not that Paul's sins were worse than everybody else's. You say, well, wait a second, isn't that what he said? And yet, when we stop and consider that, I don't know if that's really true. Were his sins, were Paul's sins worse than than Judas's sins? Were Paul's sins worse than Pilate's? Were his sins worse than the mob who crucified Jesus? Were Paul's sins worse than Emperor Nero's? who took Christians, impaled them on stakes, and lit them on fire to light his garden. Were Paul's sins really worse than all of those sinners? Perhaps we should all see ourselves and our sins for what they really are. Maybe they're they're worse than what we imagined. Uh, there's a, a video that was sent to me a number of years ago, um, and the video is called Honest Preacher. It's a short video, about two minutes. Anybody in here ever seen that, Honest Preacher? Google that, Honest Preacher. And, and the, the skit, it's a joke, right? The skit is the preacher gets up there, and he kind of has a mental breakdown in the pulpit, and so he just starts telling everything the way it really, truly is. And it's, and it's pretty funny. At one point, he actually calls somebody in the audience out by name. And he says, he says, Dan, what is your deal? I don't know if everybody knows, but Dan is the worst. I took a vow not to say who is the worst, but it's Dan. Well, that's pretty honest, right? But maybe, just maybe, maybe it's not just Dan. Maybe it's all of us. And when we get right down to it, Maybe my sins are the worst. And your sins are the worst. And maybe your reply is, Reagan, I don't think you understand what that word means. No, I do. I do. But maybe that's the attitude we should all have in regard to our sin. That Pilate's sin and Judas's sin and Nero's sin and Paul's sin They're not worse than mine. Because Jesus had to go to the cross for my sin, just like He had to go to the cross for theirs. And when I compare my sin to the holiness of my God, to the love and righteousness of my Savior, I should be struck by my unworthiness. And I should be struck by how bad my sin is. 
there is a, a basketball player. Um, there's a basketball player by the name of Brian Scalabrini. Um, this is him, Brian Scalabrini. Uh, this guy, redhead, slightly overweight white guy. And uh, he played in the NBA for a number of years. And uh, he was kind of like a, a, a joke, a punchline. He was actually a fairly decent player, but people looked at him and say, what is that guy doing playing in the NBA? And he was always getting called out by people saying, well, I may not be able to beat anybody else, but I could beat Brian Scalabrini. And he finally kind of had enough of that. And as a kind of promotion with the radio station, they had this uh, tryout and he was going to play just somebody who hadn't played in the NBA. And he ended up, he played a, um, a pretty good Division II basketball player. And old Brian Scalabrini that everybody said that they could beat, they played to 11. He won 11 to 0. He won 11 to 0. I think the guy got off two shots the whole time. This is a Division II basketball player who thought he could beat him. And afterward, he said something that I thought was really insightful. He said, all of these guys think that they're better than me, but the reality is I'm closer to LeBron James than they are to me. When we think about our sin, with whom should we be comparing ourselves? I want you to look, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you, you Ephesians, but it would apply to us too, and you who were dead in trespasses, your trespasses and your sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, that is, habitual practice, the way we lived, we were children of wrath, just as the others. Paul says, we all acted this way, whatever our sin was. And as we see God's holiness and Christ's perfection more clearly, our sin should become more clear. That is the comparison that we should make. Not comparing myself to somebody else and saying, well, my sins aren't as bad as theirs. Instead, what is their sin and what is my sin compared to Christ's holiness? In comparison, we are all, we are all the worst of sinners. That is the true comparison that we should make. And maybe we don't think that we owe God much for forgiving my sin because my sin wasn't as bad. Well, what if we viewed ourselves as the foremost of sinners, as less than the least of all the saints? What if we really contemplated our sins and the cost of those sins? What if we wrote them down and reminded ourselves of them? Well, that's exactly what we see David doing in Psalm 38. Now, we don't have time to read the whole psalm tonight, but uh, uh, on your own time, 
perhaps consider reading through this entire psalm. In Psalm 38, let's read just a few verses. Start there in verse 1 with me, please. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. I'm drowning in them. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I can't blame it on anybody else. It's my sin, my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all of my desire is before You, and my sighing is not hidden from from You. My heart pants, my strength fails me, as for the light of my eyes, it has also gone out from me. David describes the way it feels to be in the midst of sin. He describes his sin. And if we were to continue reading in Psalm 38, we would see him describe it even further with, with more illustrations of what it looks like. But I want you to go back to verse 1 and look just before verse 1. There's a psalm heading there. Again, you probably know these psalm headings were were probably not original to the text, but they are ancient. And the reason why David wrote this psalm, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. David had already been forgiven of this sin. This sin was out of his life. But he wanted to be reminded of what it felt like to be in that sin. Why? There's a lot of good answers we might give to that. And one that immediately comes to mind maybe is, well, he wanted to be reminded of his sin so he doesn't do it anymore. And that's one of the very good reasons we have for remembering our sin. We're supposed to learn from our mistakes so that we don't do them in the future. But I don't think that's the entirety of what's going on here. Twice in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, and chapter 10 and verse 17, the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31, which is perhaps the most powerful Old, uh, Old Testament passage about the new covenant. And he says that God will remember our sins no more. He's not going to charge them to our account, but we remember them, don't we? And some people have a really hard time moving on from their sin, and that's not good. God doesn't want our sin to hinder our future growth, or our work, or our joy. But at the same time, we remember our sins, don't we? And we need to make sure that we do remember them, that we don't have too easy of a time moving on. Why is it that David wrote this psalm as he was inspired by God? Why did he want to remember his sin so vividly? when he had already been forgiven of it. Yes, I'm sure, partly so that he wouldn't do it again, of course. But God has allowed us to remember those sins. And an all-powerful God could, if He so chose, He could just wipe our mind of that sin so that we don't have it anymore. Kind of like the old Men in Black movie, right? Just a bright light and He could fill it in with whatever He wants. But that's not what God does. And when we think about Paul specifically, Paul calls to mind and remembers his sin, but it's not so that he doesn't do it again. Do you think Paul was somehow going to go back out there and start persecuting Christians again if he didn't remember that? You know, he's going to go back to the life in Judaism? 
Of course not. That's not the purpose for Paul calling to mind these sins. He had a different reason and a more powerful reason for it. Paul wanted to remember his sin, call himself the least of the apostles, less than the least of all the saints, and the foremost of sinners, so that he could truly be grateful and thankful for what God had done for him. When we examine Paul's character, I think, I think thankfulness, gratitude, is one of the things that shines forth in him. Paul knew where he was. He knew what persecuting his own Savior, where that left him. And he was so incredibly grateful for the opportunity to serve God. We read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. Turn back there and, and see what Paul says next. But God, wait, we were all sinners. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's not just that we squeak in under the line of forgiveness. We sit with Christ in the heavenly places. We, exceed, we see the exceeding riches of His grace toward us who believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We need to see that grace. And if we do, we'll be motivated to rely on Him. We'll be motivated to work for Him. For we are, verse 10, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Maybe what we should all say to Paul when we read these statements he makes about himself, especially the last two, is me too. Less than the least of all the saints, Paul? Me too. The foremost of sinners, Paul? Me too. And if we do, if we have this attitude, a, a less than the least attitude toward our sins, let me make three applications. It allows us to truly appreciate grace and forgiveness. Why do people get judgmental? Why do people refuse to forgive others? Why do people think that they can work their way into heaven? It's because they do not truly appreciate what God has done by His grace. And if we truly see our sins, how can we help but appreciate what God has done by His grace? In Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, we see such a contrast in this parable of, that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus spoke this parable, verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's two manifestations of arrogance. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, not with God, with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. God, I'm so grateful that I'm so awesome. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What was the difference between these two men? One needed salvation, and he knew he needed salvation. The other didn't need salvation. Well, he did, but he didn't know that he did. Because he viewed himself as not less than the least, as more, as more than basically anybody else. I thank you I'm not like other men. Let me give you some examples, but the reality is I'm probably the best of the best. But it's only when we see ourselves as the worst of the worst that we can appreciate what God has done for us. God forgives by His grace, and we should too. Secondly, a less than the least attitude toward our sins motivates us to fulfill God's purpose, to work in gratitude. He has saved our lives. He saved the lives of others that we love dearly. Shouldn't we be willing to do anything in return? We are His workmanship. And Paul talked about the work that he was doing. He talked about it as grace. He has given me this grace to go and work for Him. To do these things for, for the Gentiles. That long list that we read in 2 Corinthians of shipwrecks and persecutions and all of those things, he says, praise God, by grace I've been able to do those things. I am just grateful for the opportunity to work. And if we see our lives as having been saved by God, not that He owes us something, but that we owe Him everything, then we'll work. We'll work heartily for Him. And then finally, a less than the least attitude toward our sins calls us to repentance. Turn to Luke chapter 5, if you would. Luke chapter 5. Beginning in verse 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. We know him more commonly as Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is only when we see our sin that we see our need to repent. And we have to acknowledge our sins and be forgiven of those sins. And we can look to Paul's example for this. What we read just a moment ago from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice verses 14 and 15. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant 
with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Jesus came to do. Of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Paul says, look at my life as an example. I was the chiefest of sinners, but God forgave me when I repented. And if He forgave me when I repented, He can forgive you when you repent. I suppose that the conversion of Paul, then Saul of Tarsus, has been used as an example of conversion perhaps more than any other. Paul himself repeatedly told of his conversion, told of his previous life, his conversion, and then what he had done since then. And so maybe that's where we end our lesson tonight, is by going and looking at that conversion in Acts chapter 22. Just one of several accounts we could use. Go to Acts chapter 22. Paul is struck with blindness on the road to Damascus. Jesus reveals Himself to him. And Paul has spent three days praying. And a certain man in verse 12 named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. In that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, God of your fathers has chosen you that you should know His will and see the just one and hear the voice of His mouth. For you will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. This is what you're going to do. This is the work that is in front of you. And now, why are you waiting? You know your sin. You persecuted perhaps killed, certainly were there agreeing to the death of Christians. You threw them into prison. You preached against them. You know your sin. Christ is giving you an opportunity to work for Him. Why are you waiting? What's the choice? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Do you know your sin? If not, that's step one. But if you know your sin, you know where you've fallen short of the glory of God, why are you waiting? Paul's the example. By grace, you can be put into God's service. By grace, you can be saved. Arise and be baptized calling on the name of the Lord. If you're already a Christian and you realize that you've not been working for God with the gratitude that you should, maybe, maybe you need to be reminded that I'm the worst of sinners and maybe you are too. God has saved us and praise God for that. If we can help you to in any way tonight, why don't you come now while together we stand and while we sing. Amen.